1: economist, investment banker, speaker, media commentator, and author on matters of finance and precious metals. Uh, he's the author of multiple books. We have uh, Currency Wars, The Making of the Next Global Crisis, and published in 2011. We have The Death of Money, The Coming Collapse of International Monetary System, 2014. The Big Drop, How to Grow Your Wealth During the Coming Collapse, 2015. The New Case for Gold, 2016. The Road to Ruin, The Global Elite's Secret Plan for the Next Financial Crisis, 2016. Aftermath. Seven Secrets of Wealth Preservation in the Coming Chaos, 2019, and his newest book, which has come out, uh, I believe January 12th, 2021, just came out. Uh, the New Great Depression: Winners and Losers in a Post-Pandemic World. I want to welcome him today. He's got uh, extensive background. He's held senior positions at Citibank, Long Term Capital Management, and Caxton Associates. Uh, he's been general counsel for the hedge fund Long Term Capital Management, which a lot of people have heard of. Uh, he successfully negotiated. Uh, the U.S. $3.6 billion rescue of the firm via the U.S. Federal Reserve in 1998. Uh, Rickards has worked on Wall Street for 35 years, and later he became a Senior Managing Director at Tangent Capital pa- Partners, LLC, a merchant bank based in New York City, also Senior Managing Director for Market Intelligence at Omnis Incorporated. So a very extensive background, and I want to welcome him. We're going to talk about his new book, again, which is called The New Great Depression, Winners and Losers in a Post-Pandemic World. Just came out January 2021. Jim, so thank you for coming. How are you doing?
2: I'm fine. It's great to be with you.
1: Yeah. So I'd like to focus on your most recent book, uh, The New Great Depression, if it's okay with you, and and ask you a few questions about it.
2: That'll be great. Looking forward to it.
1: You know, we're getting close to a year into the, you know, the coronavirus situation. How has your perception of the whole, uh, you know, the whole virus and everyone's response to it like evolved over time from when it started till now?
2: Well certainly the conditions have evolved in the sense that we're now in the thick of a second wave uh worse than the first wave uh and that's something I anticipated in my book I started writing the book last um April and May uh, into June uh obviously we were in the middle of a very bad lockdown at the time March April May was economically and also from a pandemic point of view the the worst part of it uh, you know of course up until then and then we had a little bit of a diminution in cases over the summer, some reopenings, although then at least in the United States, the economy got slammed with the riots. So it was if you were a small and medium sized enterprise or you were a bar or a restaurant or a nail salon or a boutique retailer, uh, and you were locked down in March, April, May, and you say, Well, at least we can reopen in the summer and then Along came these riots in a lot of cities and burnings and doors, you know, windows boarded up, et cetera. And then by October, the caseload started to explode again. So right now, the cases are higher and the fatalities are higher and the disease is spreading faster than it was last spring. So uh, on the one hand, uh, it's, it's pretty, uh, uh, you know, it's horrific and daunting to see that happening. On the other hand, I did talk about it in my book because I said uh, I looked at three. I I looked at all the major pandemics of the 20th century. And then in other contexts, we went all the way back to the uh, black uh, death of the the 14th century. But in three of the four prior pandemics, there had been a second wave, which was worse than the first wave. That was the Spanish flu of 1918, uh, the Asian flu of uh, 1958, the Hong Kong flu of 1968, 69. Um, and then there was a uh, a swine flu in, uh, I believe, 2009. And in three of the four, there was a second wave. So it, you didn't need a uh, a degree in immunology to say that we might expect a second wave that'll be worse. And that's exactly what's happened. So on the one hand, uh, we did anticipate it and see it coming. On the other hand, it is a little uh, uh, disturbing to actually have it going on because uh, and obviously it's tragic for all the victims.
1: Well, I look at the uh, total death rate though in the United States for uh, 2020 versus previous years and it's really not changed very much. You know, our population grew a little bit, it grew a little bit, but it doesn't really seem significantly higher. But um
2: yeah, well the question is why? I mean, so uh right. yeah, if people are dying of COVID and they're under quarantine, probably traffic accidents are going to go down. Uh, but that's because no one's on the road. I mean, not no one. That's an overstatement, but the point is, you know, if you die of COVID, you're not going to die of pneumonia. If you're under quarantine, you're not going to die in a car accident because you're not going anywhere. So, uh, but if you look at data specific to COVID, of course, that speaks for itself about, you know, at this point, you know, looking at U.S. fatalities are quite high. Global fatalities over 1.8 million, closing in on 1.9 million. Uh, so, but, you know, in the U.S., the suicide rate has tripled. Uh, the murder rates and subsidies have doubled. We're actually killing more people with the lockdown than we're saving. So, uh, you know, the the distribution of specific causes of death maybe is moving around a little bit, but there's no question about the impact of the, the pandemic.
1: Well, so what do you think the effect of uh, these trillions in stimulus are going to be, you know, the people not being able to work in certain types of industry. Um, everything seems to be, I guess, for the moment, okay. But I can't imagine that inflation won't happen massively because of all the stimulus and the bankruptcies will rise, et cetera. What, like, what do you see as ahead?
2: Well, there is no stimulus. Now, what, what's going on? Uh, there's massive money printing and massive deficit spending. So if you go all the way back to 2008, at the beginning of the global financial crisis of 08, 09, the Federal Reserve Balance Sheet was about $800 billion. Today, it's about $7.5 trillion. So the Fed has printed almost $7 trillion of new money since 2008. But of that, uh, almost $4 trillion has been printed in the last year. So they are printing money. Uh, the U.S. has a baseline deficit. When I say a deficit, meaning if, if, if there was no special... Uh, programs or anything related to COVID, our deficit would be about a trillion dollars a year for fiscal 2020 and fiscal 2021. But Congress added $3 trillion on top of that uh, last spring with various relief programs, payroll protection plan and uh, aid to hospitals and and, uh, uh, increased unemployment benefits, extended unemployment benefits, et cetera. And then just in the past week, they've added another almost $1 trillion, over $900 billion. And then once the um, uh, Biden administration gets up and running, I would expect by you know sooner than later, February, March, let's say, there'll be a, another at least $1 trillion, perhaps more, of deficit spending. So you add it all up, you've got $2 trillion of baseline budget deficits and uh, $5 trillion or more, perhaps $6 trillion, of additional programs specific to COVID. Leave leave aside all the details of who gets what and why and what the politics of it are. Those are just the the numbers. So what you've got is, you know, since uh, this time last year, $4 trillion of new uh, new money printing, uh, and we're going to have upwards of uh, $7 trillion of deficit spending. So they are printing money and they are spending money uh, that they don't have, but none of it is producing stimulus.
1: In your book, though, it seems like you're talking about uh, deflation instead of inflation. So can you talk about why you think uh, deflation will happen versus inflation?
2: Sure. First of all, deflation. What's what's happening right now is is called disinflation, so meaning the inflation rate is coming down. But you take it further, of course, you you get into deflation. Uh, and a lot of people don't understand this. You know, the Austrian economists and the monetarists and the neo-Keynesians and the Milton Friedman groupies are running around saying, "Oh my goodness, you know, you print uh, seven, you know, you know, five trillion dollars or six trillion dollars, you're bound to have uh, out of control inflation." That's not true. Uh, it's not analytically true, and it's not actually true. This has been going on for 12 years. Where's the inflation? There's no inflation. You know, it's been uh, about 1.5%. Okay, it's not zero. The Fed's target for inflation is 2%. They can't even get there. They've touched 2% uh, one or two times very briefly for a month or, two or so over the last 12 years. But basically, uh, that they can't hit their 2% inflation target. Actual inflation is about 1.5%. It's been going down. Uh, so that shows empirically that printing, as I say, uh, $5 trillion of, of new money, or uh, sorry, $4 trillion in the past year, does not produce inflation. Now, the, no one understands it. Well, very few people understand it. The reason is that money printing does not cause inflation. What causes inflation is something called the velocity of money, meaning the turnover of money. So just a very simple way to explain it. Let's say I go out to dinner and I tip the waitress, you know, a dollar, you know, whatever, I, I tip the waitress. And she takes a taxi home and tips the taxi driver, and the taxi driver takes the tip money and puts gas in his car.
1: Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives in our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show.
2: Well, in that example, my money had velocity of three. You know, one, my dollar produce $3 of goods and services, which were the, the waitress tip, the taxi tip, and the gasoline. So that's velocity of three. But let's say I stay home and watch TV and don't spend any money. In that case, my money has velocity of zero. There's there's no, I didn't spend any money. There's no turnover of money. So uh, nominal GDP is equal to money supply times velocity. How much money is there and how much does it turn over? And that number is nominal GDP. So I ask people what is 7 trillion dollars times 0? The answer is 0, meaning you can have all the you can have all the money you want, but if you don't have velocity, you don't have an economy. Well, what are the data? Well, the data shows that velocity has been declining since 1998. By the way, it went down faster in the 2008 financial crisis. It's going down faster today, but the downtrend has been going on since for uh, 22 years so obviously the-
1: why do you what do you think that is is that people are saving more or what they're having to there's a dollar going further like why uh
2: well there, there are a number of factors one of them is uh um demographics uh, yeah the, the baby boom getting older and hitting retirement age, and uh people spend less and, and save more that's certainly the case right now. you look at the uh we're in a liquidity trap, you look at the uh, savings rate in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic it hit. 20, uh, sorry, 33% uh, in April, it was still 17% in May, and it was still in double digits in June and July. Now, just for a baseline, the normal savings rate in the United States, it runs between kind of 5 and 8%, but 8% is considered high. But we're seeing savings rates, as I say, in, in the 20s and at the peak 33%. So um, I'm not saying savings is a bad thing. Savings might be a good thing, but if I'm saving money, I'm not spending it. And if I'm not spending it, there's no velocity and therefore no inflation. Uh, there are other factors at work. Technology is a factor. It lowers the cost of things. You know, when you get all your inflation uh, groupies, you know, and they're like, oh, the price of milk went up or, you know, something went up. Well, that's fine. But inflation is calculated as a basket. Uh, what, what's happening to the price of clothing? It's dropping like a stone. They're practically giving clothing away. Airline tickets. You know, buy a new computer, uh, iPad, whatever, uh a Samsung phone, all those prices are going down. Okay, tuition's going up, healthcare's going up, technology's going down, clothing's going down, travel's going down. So when you compute the whole basket, and yeah, individual components could be going up or down, but the overall basket has been going down. So you have a, a demographic factor, you have a technological factor. And I would say the third factor is debt. Uh, as there's very good evidence that as debt goes up, uh, the economy slows. And of course, that part of that would be reducing the turnover of money. Right. So there, there are big, there are powerful long-term factors at work. But then, of course, when you have a, a economic crisis, as we did in 2008, and uh, sorry, that was really more of a financial crisis, I would call it. And then today in economic crisis, they're they're different, but they're both crises that causes savings to go higher. So so you can understand Fed monetary policy is kind of a desperate struggle or race between declining velocity and increasing money supply. So the money supply is not producing inflation. What it's doing, it's just barely offsetting the impact of declining velocity just to keep just to prop the economy up, keep the economy growing at a, a modest level. And that's why I call my book, The New Great Depression because we're in a depression. A depression doesn't mean continuous declining growth. You can have some growth in a depression, but what it means is that the growth is below trend. It's below trend, it's below potential, it's below what it should be. So it's depressed growth. Now, you can and do have technical recessions in a depression. Uh, the Great Depression is a good example, the, the, what we call the first Great Depression. My book is The New Great Depression. But the first Great Depression from 1929 to 1940 had two technical recessions. And just for the benefit of listeners, a recession is defined as two consecutive, two or more consecutive quarters of declining GDP. So that's your recession. And economists talk about recessions because it's objective. You can quantify it. There's a scorekeeper. There's something called the National Bureau of Economic Research in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's a a private group, but they're well-regarded economists and a lot of former government officials. And they're the ones who call balls and strikes. They decide when a recession begins and when a recession ends. Well, they've already called this one. They said the recession began or a recession began in February 2020. I think that's right. I agree with that. But it was over by around July because, you know, first quarter, talking 2020 now, first quarter growth was negative 5%. Second quarter growth was negative 31% on an annualized basis, the worst quarter in U.S. history. But third quarter growth was up. It was positive about 33%. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Fourth quarter we don't know yet, but you know best estimates are it'll go up around eight percent, so it looks like the recession's over uh, it was first and second quarter of twenty twenty with growth returning in the third quarter. but the depression is not over as I say the depression is more it's behavioral it 's psychological uh it includes recessions and again, going back to the great depression nineteen twenty nine to nineteen forty we had a recession from nineteen twenty nine to nineteen thirty three And we had a second recession from 1937 to 1938. But 1934 to 1936, it was pretty good growth and unemployment came down. But we were still in a depression. And the reason is that we fell so far at the beginning that even when there was growth, we hadn't recovered. We hadn't dug out of it. I mean, a simple way to explain it. Let's say you you fall into a 50-foot hole and you climb up 20 feet. Well, nice going. You climbed up 20 feet. That's good climbing but you 're still thirty you 're still thirty feet in the hole relative to where you started, and that 's where we are today
1: so you make suggestions in the book i don 't want to give away the whole thing, but you know part of the book's premise is that no matter what goes on, there's ways to do well financially and protect yourself right Can you give uh, at least a few hints or a few ideas on what some of those ways are
2: no i 'd be happy to and there 's a lot of detail in the book in chapter six and the conclusion and i you know, invite like the readers to to uh, have a close look at that, but just to kind of give an historical example of that, and then i'll turn to uh, your question, Richard, about the uh, the spe- specific things you can do today. Um, a lot of listeners will be familiar with the uh, the Weimar Republic German hyperinflation of the early 1920s. That's, that's a familiar story. And a lot of people are, again, well acquainted with it. Well, in that hyperinflation in 1922, there was an individual named Hugo Stinez, who's German. Uh, and what he did, he saw it coming. He borrowed massive amounts of Reichsmarks. And invested the rice marks in hard assets he bought coal steel transportation assets vessels railroads etc then he waited then the hyperinflation came he paid back the debt i could say pennies on the dollar but really you know a hundredth of a penny on the dollar i mean the currency was basically worthless so he paid back his debts with you know worthless money which cost him nothing in real terms and he kept the assets and he became the richest man in germany And his nickname in German, I don't speak German, but it's uh, the Inflationskönig, which means the inflation king. So there's an example, again, the worst hyperinflation in the history of developed economies. But there's an individual who saw it coming, did the right thing, and ended up as the richest man in Germany. So I make the point that even in difficult economic times, and that's certainly where we are today, there are things you can do to, at a minimum, preserve wealth and better yet, actually make money and and prosper. Uh, A couple specific points. um, I recommend a 10% allocation to gold, just 10%, that's plenty. Uh, A lot of people, you know, they wanna put words in your mouth. They say, oh, Jim Rickard says, sell everything and buy gold. I've never said that. I don't think that's a good idea. But 10% of your investable assets in gold is a good idea. I also recommend a large cash allocation, maybe as much as 30%. And people say, well, why would I wanna have cash? You know, there's no yield. Well, uh, yeah, the yield is very low. That's true. But if you have deflation, which I anticipate, the real value of money goes up because the cost of living goes down. So uh, cash could actually be your best performing asset in a deflationary environment. In other words, if you had $100,000 and you got almost no yield on it, but prices went down 2%, the value of your cash would go up 2% because, again, your cost of living went down. You get more for your money. So that's a very valuable asset in its own right. Beyond that, cash has huge embedded optionality. And what I mean by that is um, when you have cash, you can be the person who pivots into an asset class when we get better visibility. Now the problem right now, if you go out and put all your money in the stock market or private equity or venture capital or hedge fund or a lot of other investments, and it turns out that that was a bad choice. We learn more and say in six months or eight months, or gee, I really shouldn't be in that uh, particular hedge fund you can't get your money out, at least not very easily. At a minimum, you have to cross the bid offer spread and pay some commissions and, and spreads, or worse yet, you could be locked in for three to five years, say in a private equity fund. I mean, Henry Kravis is a good a, a good guy, but he's not gonna give you your money back you know, if you invest in a KKR fund. So having some cash, not all of it, but again, I recommend around 30%, um, means that you're, you're not stuck in anything. It doesn't cost you anything to get out of cash and you can pivot and enter different asset classes when we learn more. Um, I also recommend 10-year treasury notes. And people say, well, why would you be in 10-year treasury notes? Interest rates are at all-time lows. They have nowhere to go but up. And just a little bit of bond math for the benefit of the listener, if, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive for a lot of people. But interest rates and bond prices move inversely. So as interest rates come down, bond prices go up. And as interest rates go up, bond prices go down. So a lot of people, including some pretty smart people, uh, Jeff Gunlock, um, Bill Gross, um, Dan Aviksen at uh, PIMCO, and some others have said, well, interest rates can't get any lower. They're at all-time lows. They have no, nowhere to go but up. So get out of bonds, short the bond market. It's a bubble, et cetera. One by one, they're getting carried out feet first. They're wrong about that. And, and why are they wrong? The answer is that uh, it's true that nominal rates are low, but real rates are still high. Well, what's the difference? Well, uh, the real rate is just take the nominal rate. That's the rate you see on the screen or here on TV or somebody says, you know, ten-year. and and subtract inflation. And that gives you the real rate. So nominal rates are low, but real rates are still high and they're going to have to come down uh, if you do want any stimulus. And so as rates go down, that's a a big capital gain for 10 year treasury notes.
1: So, uh, you mentioned deflation a few times. Uh, you mentioned why you, you think there's, you know, that printing money doesn't really lead to inflation, but why would there be a deflationary period coming or are we in it? Uh, you know, again, well, what well, would it cause this?
2: It, both it, we're, we're in it and it's going to get worse. And the reason is uh, higher savings rates. We already talked about that, but you know, if I, you know, like for example, right now today, the stock market's going up. And why is that? I mean, we've got, you know, uh, riots on Capitol Hill and disputed election, you know, there's all kinds of you know, bad things going on. Um, and the economy is going back into lockdown and the death rate is going up, et cetera. So why would the stock market be going up? Well, there are a number of reasons. But one of the reasons is that with the incoming Biden administration, people expect that you're going to have these big deficit spending programs. And again, they call it stimulus. I say it's not stimulus. It is deficit spending, but it's not stimulus. I, I and, and I can explain why. But other people, the market uh, believe that it is stimulus so they're saying well all this everyone's going to get a two thousand dollar check and uh they're going to do infrastructure and they're going to do this and spend all this money and that's going to be inflationary and and the answer is uh no people will get the two thousand dollar checks that's true but they're saving it and that's the point if you pay down debt that's the economic equivalent of savings or if you just stick the money in the bank that is savings but neither one of them are consumption paying down debt or putting your money in the bank or investing in the stock market or anything else That's not consumption. That doesn't drive consumer prices up. That's not inflationary. And it may even be a good thing individually, but in the aggregate, 70% of the US economy is consumption. So what happens if people get paychecks or special bailout money or higher unemployment benefits or anything else, and they don't spend it? That's where the deflation comes in. Now, for example, if you lost your job, you don't get any income at all, you're not going to spend it. You're not going to take your friends out to dinner. You're going to Save it. And even if you didn't lose your job, you're saying, well, you know, maybe I will. You know, maybe my neighbor lost his job or my spouse lost her job, as the case may be. So you save it not because you're unemployed, but because you worry that you might be or your company might fail. By the way, the name for that is called a a precautionary savings. You you save out of precaution for something that something bad that might happen, even if it hasn't happened. Well, again, individually, those can be smart choices. But in the aggregate, if everyone in the economy saves and doesn't spend, you're in what's called a liquidity trap. And so that uh, and that is deflationary because that velocity is
1: dropping. So you said also that people don't understand deflation. What's to understand about it that's that's really important? What, what, what will happen if we continue to deepen into uh, deflation?
2: Well, we haven't had sustained deflation since the 1930s. So you'd have to be kind of 95 years old or older to have a living memory or living experience of deflation. So, you know, everyone knows the textbook definition. It's, uh, you know, consumer prices index goes down. um, And so you can understand it in theory, but no one's lived through it. uh, Again, unless you're 95 years old. So we don't really have a working knowledge, working familiarity with deflation, but why is it bad? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, What's going on in deflation? Well, prices are going down, but it means, as I mentioned earlier, the real value of money is going up. Well, the real value of debt is going up. Also, if I borrow a million dollars from you, I owe you a million dollars. Now, it's interesting whether... You know, In inflation, it might be worth less. I would be rooting for that and say, well, I, I only have to pay, Richard, you know, $900,000 in real value because uh, the million dollars is worth less. But in deflation, the opposite is true. The million dollars I owe you might be worth $1.1 $1. 1 uh, in real terms because the price of everything went down. So deflation crushes debtors. This has happened. It happened in the 1930s, but it also happened in the 1870s and the 1880s. When we went through a period of deflation and farmers had mortgages on their loans or borrowed money to raise their crops and they couldn't pay it back because the the price of the commodities they were selling went down but the value of the loan did not go down Uh, so the real value of the loan went up and people went bankrupt so that's the first thing which is uh it hurts debtors now you say well gee doesn't it help creditors you know if i'm a lender And you owe me money and the real value of the money is going up and you're paying me. Um, I'm like, hey, I'm actually getting more from my money because this money is worth more. Well, that's true right up until the point when the debtor goes bankrupt. Then that's what happens. There's like, I can't pay this. They file for bankruptcy or walk away. So all of a sudden, the loss shifts from the debtor who files for bankruptcy and walks away to the creditor. It's like, oh, I was getting paid in dollars that are worth more. Oh, gee, now I'm not getting paid at all because the debt's in default. And then the banks fail. So that's how an economic crisis and a deflationary crisis turns into a financial crisis. Because even though the creditor initially uh, thinks he's better off because they're getting paid back in dollars that are worth more, at the end of the day, they're worse off because the debtor defaults. So then it spreads through the banking system. And, and it just... You have to get inflation in order to break the back of deflation. If you don't, you're just going to have massive defaults, bankruptcies, unemployment, and a, and a worse depression. So the question is, how do you get inflation? Well, the central banks don't know how to do it. They've been trying for 13 years. They can't do it. I, I do know how, and others know how. And I explain it in the conclusion of the book. And the point I make is that, you know, I hope some central banker reads my book and says, aha, here's here's how to do it. I'm not counting on that, but I'm, I am counting on the large number of everyday readers to read it. And what I say to them is, even if the central banks and governments don't do this, you can You personally can you know, take this recommendation and benefit enormously from the... Um, yeah, we're going to start with deflation, but it's, it has to end up as inflation. The inflation's coming, but not yet. And that's the key. Uh, if you bet on inflation right now, you're going to lose money because you're going to get whacked by the deflation. But when the deflation gets worse, eventually, not right away, but eventually, central banks are going to have to figure out how to cause inflation if they don't want a financial collapse. And there's only one way to do it. And I talk about it in the book. So once they re- and basically raise the dollar price of gold. So that's the reason to own gold. Why, why uh, even if the central banks are slow to realize it, you don't have to be slow. You can buy your gold today and, and have the benefit of it.
1: So what's the timetable for the continuation of the deflation and then the subsequent inflation? What do you think it'll be?
2: Well, it's hard to say. It could, it could play out over years. I don't think it's going to play out. I don't, think we're, I don't think we're going to have inflation in six months or a year, maybe maybe two years. This is That's why I call it the new Great Depression. This is going to get worse, maybe a lot worse, before it gets better. But what are you waiting for? In other words, I, I hear people say, well, okay, Jim, I hear you. I even agree with you, but we're going to have deflation first. So I'm going to wait to buy my gold or my inflation hedges until it actually hits. There are two problems with that. I can tell you what's going to happen, but the timing is difficult. You can't say exactly when. So it might hit before you made the adjustment if you're not nimble enough, number one. Number two, uh, when gold starts to take off, and it's, I mean, it has doubled in the last five years. It's gone from round numbers about $1,000 an ounce to $2,000 an ounce since 2015. So it has doubled in the last five years, and it went up significantly in 2020, and I expect it will go up again in 2021. So gold's on the move. But people who say, "Well, you know, I'm going to wait till the inflation actually shows up, and then I'm going to go buy gold," you might not be able to find it. Uh, you might actually find that, you know, you don't have a dealer. You call a dealer, they're ordered or they, they're not taking new accounts because they're trying to supply the existing customers. The mints can't get it. The refiners can't get it. You know, et cetera. And so that the gold that you'll you'll be watching the price soaring on television, but you won't actually be able to get any. So the time to get it is now. And then why not enjoy price increases from a lower level? I mean, if you buy gold at $5,000 an ounce and goes to $6,000 an ounce, well, that's fine. But if you buy it at $2,000 an ounce and goes to $6,000 an ounce, you've just tripled your money. So as I said, what are you waiting for?
1: Do you think at all about cryptocurrencies or do you think they're just going to remain in the background? Uh, Bitcoin has been surging like unbelievably, but do you think they'll play any role, and should people look at them?
2: That's up to the individual. No, I, I don't think they'll play any role in the international monetary system. They will. All this talk about you know Bitcoin becoming the new global reserve currency is nonsense. Let me be specific about why. I don't like to make statements like that without explaining why. People don't really understand what reserve currencies are. It's basically a country's savings account. You know, so if you're China or South Korea and you sell more abroad than you buy and you have a trade surplus, you get it usually in dollars, not exclusively, but usually in dollars. Well, you have to do something with the dollars and they do. But a lot of people think, well, you know, we'll say, well, China has $1.4 trillion in its reserve position, which is true. But it's not as if they have you know pallets of $100 bills stacked up in the basement of the People's Bank of China. They don't. You actually go out and buy securities. So when you, say people have, when you say people have dollars in the reserve position, what, what they actually mean is that they have dollar-denominated securities in the reserve position. In the case of China, those securities are treasury bills, notes, and bonds. So they're not piles of dollars. They're securities denominated in dollars. And that's what it takes to be a global reserve currency. if I want euros in my reserve position, I'll go buy some German government bonds. If I want dollars in my reserve position, I'll go buy some 10-year treasury notes. Well, where's the Bitcoin bond market? doesn 't exist there's no bond market you can buy bitcoin mm-hmm. I could buy some bitcoin today, but there's no securities there's no yield there's no bond market it, you know you don't have any of the legal protections you don't have networks of dealers you don't have um you know settlement payment mechanisms in the case of china you don 't have the good rule of law et cetera so yeah bitcoin exists it i mean it's clearly a bubble i I, I see the price on my trading screens, I know where it is, I know where it has gone, but it's clearly a bubble it's going to crash i don't know when it's going to crash in you know, maybe next month, maybe six months from now uh, so to me I, I would rather you know, play roulette I, I enjoy it more, but uh it's it's a kind of gambling it's, it's a kind of speculation you know, so to, I was, to you
1: it, it is it's not digital gold by any means a lot of people who uh, try to call it that, but to you yeah.
2: Yeah, I love the way um, I love the way all the Bitcoin groupies, you know, I'm, if you're on social media on Twitter, I'm on Twitter at James G Rickards. He's my middle initial. Rickards is R-I-C-K-A-R-D-S. So at James G Rickards. But I see a lot of the Bitcoin groupies on on Twitter. And when they want to post it, they say something about Bitcoin. They have a link and they post a picture. and The picture is always. Bitcoin is a gold coin. It's a gold coin with the letter B and the two lines through it, and a little bit of digital circuit. I said, "Well, that's interesting. Why are you presenting Bitcoin as a gold coin? It's not a coin. It's not physical. It's 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 digital. But it's it, it just psychologically, it's interesting that the Bitcoin fans think they have to show you a gold coin to make you think that Bitcoin is some kind of gold. Well, if you want a gold coin, go buy an American gold eagle, a one ounce eagle, or you know, one quarter ounce eagle or buy American silver eagle, uh, buy a Kruger and Maple Leaf. Those are real gold coins or silver coins, as the case may be. So uh, it shows a kind of gold envy on the part of Bitcoin holders. And you're right. They propagate this whole thing. It's digital gold. No, it's they're digital dig, digits, you know. So when I was in high school, there was a popular dance um, or junior high school. I guess it was a popular song at, at the dances. I, I think it was Dion and the Belmonts, but the song was called Shout. And the refrain was shout, shout, knock yourself out. Well, if you want Bitcoin, knock yourself out and go, go buy it. But I, to me, it's a a bubble and a joke and has no future.
1: Well, fair enough. You know, as you were talking earlier, I thought of, uh, you know, the value of debt and buying a house. So I guess under normal inflationary conditions or at least a little bit of inflation, you know, you buy a house or you buy a car and. The dollars that you use to pay back that debt over time, it, the paying back of the debt should get easier as the prices of everything goes up, and your mortgage payment, or your car payment, let's say, stay static for a number of years. Is there a name for that phenomenon, or is that really mm. an important part of owning an asset?
2: Well, that happens in inflation. That's exactly what happens in inflation. I mean, I, you know, I, I borrowed money in 1980. At 13%, it was a more, I bought a condo and it was a mortgage in my first condo and I borrowed money at 13%. And my mother cried because her first mortgage was like 2%. She's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe you're paying 13%. I said, mom, I am paying 13%, but inflation was 15%. uh, And I was paying mortgage interest so at the time it was tax deductible and the tax rates were 50%, five zero. So by the time you took into account inflation, that made my my real rate negative two, and a fifty percent tax benefit on the thirteen percent, so that was another six and a half percent off. My real rate was negative eight, about I mean, approximately negative eight percent. That's a low real rate. Uh, so yeah, when when you have inflation, that's an enormous benefit for debtors, people with mortgages or car loans or any other kind of loan, because the value of the debt's going down because the value of the dollar's going down. But deflation is the opposite. It actually makes the real value of the debt go up. So whether you want to be a borrower or not, whether you want to be leveraged or not, depends on your view of inflation versus deflation. And that's really the warning, or at least something to think about. this mentality, like, oh, I'll borrow a lot of money and buy a house, and the house will go up, and the mortgage will go down because the value of the dollar is going down because of inflation. Well, if there is inflation, that 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 can be true. That's how things work. But uh, there is no inflation right now. In fact, deflation is the greater danger. So, if you have a 1980s or 1990s, or for that matter, even early 2000s mindset where uh, values go up and inflation is strong and the debt goes down, then fine. But I don't um, see that. I think, as I say, that deflation, at least in the short run, is the
1: greater danger. In terms of the housing market, it seems to be incredibly strong, at least in states that haven't locked down as much and demographics are changing, well, changing the way that people are moving. What do you see for the housing market over the next year or two in response to deflation and then inflation?
2: Well, it really depends on the market. You know, I have to use cliches, but as they say in real estate, it's all about location, location, location. But what's going on right now is a, uh, an amplified, more dramatic version of that and what I mean by that. So right now, there is a major exodus going on from a number of American cities, and, and I'm talking big numbers. So what are the cities where people are leaving? Uh, the answer is Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle. New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and a few other cities. People are just getting out. Just to be specific, uh, in New York, for example, uh, well, it's true anywhere. When you move, one of the things you do is you file a notice with the post office, a mail forwarding notice. You say, hey, I'm I'm moving. Here's my address. If any mail comes to me, send it to this new address. And the post office will do that. Well, those are public records. We We know what those numbers are. And Through October, and again, this is just October, so I imagine the number is significantly higher today. But through last October, 300,000 of those notices have been filed in the first uh, 10 months of 2020. Well, that's per household. So if you assume on average three people per household, I mean, some households will be larger, some will be smaller, some will be individuals, but if you just take a three person average, Times three hundred thousand that 's almost a million people leaving New York City, as I say, and the number 's gone up since october that 's the last time I saw the data. Well, the population in new york 's about eight million, uh, so you have a million people, twelve percent of the population leaving New York, telling the government that they 're leaving with these with these notices, and similar things are going on in, in a lot of other cities so and that 's also destroying the wealth generating potential of those cities. I mean, a city is the greatest wealth creation machine in the history of civilization. That's what civilization means. It means people live in cities. And so, you know, the talent comes in and it it could be, you know, financial talent or artistic talent or writers philosophers bankers lawyers engineers uh you know and then uh and don't even have to be a professional just everyday people tend to be a little smarter and they crunch into each other and ideas are flying around and you've got museums and performing arts and culture that's what a city is and this enormous creativity and wealth generation that comes out of it that's being destroyed When you say, by the way, you say a million people are leaving. Well, who, who's leaving in particular? Well, almost by definition, the people who leave are the people with the most money and the most talent because they have the greatest ability to leave. You know, they have a second home or they have the money to buy a second home, uh, or they're buying a house in the suburbs and uh the you know, New York, I mean Broadway's closed, the museums are closed. If you were a talented person, why would you want to be in New York? And of course who's left behind? Well, again, sadly the people with the least talent, the least flexibility and the least money. So we're destroying the cities. Now, where are these people going? are going to Miami. Miami's booming right now. Nashville is the fastest growing major city in the United States, Phoenix, Scottsdale, Boise, Idaho, uh, Austin, Texas, and elsewhere. So you can't just say real estate. You have to say, well, you know, I wouldn't want to buy real estate in New York right now, but you might very well want to buy real estate in Austin or Miami because they're booming. So you have to understand the dynamic I just described uh, and pick your spots uh, and obviously, you know, the financing and pricing, all those things matter a lot. But, uh, but the trend is that some cities are collapsing and others are booming. And if you want to invest in real estate, obviously pick the ones that are booming.
1: Yeah. That makes sense. In terms of the, uh, you know, I know it was even harder to predict, but uh, what do you think is going to happen with COVID over 2021? You think that, uh, you know, governments are just going to ignore WHO, et cetera, and just go into more lockdowns and keep destroying the economy? Or do you think that, uh, you know, the effect of maybe less federal tax receipts from 2020, because people couldn't work as much is going to kick in, or like what factors this year are going to be super important?
2: Well, I, I think I agree with, with all those factors. I think that, um, I mean, the, there's some things we know, and some things we don't know. So what we know is that it's getting worse right now. I understand the vaccines are out there, and there have been some logistical problems with the vaccine. The general that the White House put in charge of vaccine distribution was a genius. I mean, the guy got it done. Uh, He actually, a lot of people were complaining because their Christmas cards were arriving late. Well, that's because they took over the U.S. Postal Service to ship the vaccine, which was good. That was, I think, a good decision. And they did a lot else besides. Uh, and these vaccines are delicate. They, in many cases, they have to be frozen. They're kept like a 100 below zero. Uh, they have a very short shelf life. So when you unfreeze them and get ready to use them, they're only, you got a few days uh, in, in which to inject people. If you don't, it's like, milk going sour. I mean, it, it loses um, uh, its its effectiveness and, and you have to throw it away. So they got the vaccine produced and they got it out there. But the actual administration of the injections at the hospital or clinic level has been very uneven. Some places are doing okay. And abroad, Israel has done a good job. United Arab Emirates have done a good job. The U.S. it varies, but New York has done a Terrible job! They've only been able to kind of administer thirty percent of what they had planned to, and they're actually at the point where they're throwing out some of the vaccine, if you can believe it, because they were not able to to use it in time. So the vaccine rollout is slow, but the infection rate and the fatality rate are skyrocketing. The disease is growing faster; people are dying faster than they can get the vaccines out there. So right now, we're losing the race. Uh, the caseload and the number of fatalities today are much higher than they were last March. When we go back to last March, April and May, that was seemed like a pretty horrific state of affairs and a severe economic lockdown. It's worse today. Now, the vaccine is not a silver bullet. I mean, it's good that we have it. Nice job getting it done and let's hope it works. Although I think we should bear in mind it's still a little bit experimental because they skipped a lot of stages in the normal testing process. Now, I don't quibble with that. I think you you had to do that to get something out there But it's not as if they know everything there is to know about the vaccine and some reason to think that they're, well, we're we're seeing some side effects. Now, there are always side effects of vaccines. And I'm not saying that's a reason to discontinue the program, but people should understand that it's still kind of experimental, even as it's being rolled out. But anyway, let's hope it's very effective. But as I say, right now, the, the, the administration of the vaccines is slow and the virus is winning and it's worse than it was last spring. Now, where do we go from here? And here, there are a couple of things we, we don't know. Well, the, well, there is a new strain of the virus, called a strain or variant, you know, same thing. Uh, it first emerged, as far as we know, in South Africa and Southern England. So what most people have been suffering through so far is called the Italian strain, which was a mutation that arose in Italy from the original Wuhan strain. It definitely came from Wuhan. That's from the laboratory there, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So we know that, but some of it went east, to And hit Seattle early on, and you saw those nursing home deaths, but some of it went west to Milan, Italy for fashion week and that 's when the Italian outbreak exploded, uh, and then that variant came to new york, and that 's why New York was originally far worse than Seattle and, and Los Angeles because it was a different strain. It was actually more contagious you can You can blame the policymakers and try to draw a distinction between you know Andrew Cuomo and Gavin Newsom, but the fact is uh, and Cuomo made one blunder after another. So I'm not defending Cuomo, but he did, he was dealing with a worse strain of the virus. Now, we have a new strain. This is called South African or England. It's spreading around the world as it always does. Lockdowns don't work. And this is further evidence that lockdowns don't work. It is more contagious. That means from one given infected person, more Additional people will be infected. So far, it doesn't appear to be more fatal in, t- in percentage terms. So fatalities divided by cases doesn't seem higher, but the absolute number of fatalities is higher, meaning if you have more infections, you're going to have more fatalities. Even if the rate is the same, fine, but that's not the absolute number. The absolute number is going up because the cases are going up. Now, The big question, the $64 trillion question, if you want to put it that way, does the vaccine work against the new strain? Because we have reason to believe it does work against what I call the Italian strain. But does this vaccine work against this new English strain? Some say yes, some say it's too early to tell. I think I lean to the latter view that hopefully it does, but it's too early to tell. Even if it does, let's just say that the vaccine works fine against this English strain, leaving aside the logistical problems with getting the vaccine out there. Who's to say there won't be another mutation? Uh, viruses are highly unusual things. I mean, when I say things, scientists don't even agree if a virus is alive or not. Uh, it's kind of academic, but start there. We don't even know if the things are alive, but they're very good at replicating themselves. A virus invades a healthy cell, takes over the cell's machinery, replicates itself. The, the cell explodes and then all of a sudden you got thousands of viruses, and they're doing the same thing over and over, and it grows exponentially and hops from one person to another. That's how a virus works. Well, it mutates all the time, and that's not unusual, and some of the mutations are fairly harmless. They involve uh, chemical pairs in parts of the genome that just don't affect, don't have anything to do with the ability of the virus to replicate, but some of them could and some of them do. So if you, and there's a name for this, it's called um, mutation uh, escape or um, infection escape. Basically the idea is that the virus tries to mutate in such a way that it gets around whatever the, whatever antibodies people have, whatever vaccines you have, They, they come up with a new form where those antibodies and vaccines don't work. Now it doesn't happen all the time. It doesn't happen automatically, but it can happen. And if it does, then we could be looking, we're in a worse second wave. We could be looking at a third wave where the vaccine doesn't work, depending on these new mutations. So it's too soon to declare victory. We're not out of this. And of course, we're talking medicine right now, but our epidemiology and virology, but all this impacts the economy in ways that uh, we've been talking about in the ways that I describe in my book. So uh, anyway, uh, this is the first book and the only book so far that that tackles the pandemic and the economy. Some doctors have written some books on COVID. I'm sure there'll be more. Uh, Economists, interestingly, don't write a lot of books. They write textbooks because you can make a lot of money. And there are a few authors who do, Paul Krugman and Barry Akin-Green write some, you know, written a number of books. Most economists prefer to write papers, academic papers, because they don't want to go out on a limb. Things change all the time. You write a paper, you turn out to be wrong. Well, just go write another paper books are different. They have a shelf life and they have to be robust. You got to pick it up three years from now and say, yeah, this guy got this stuff right. So this is the first book that deals with the pandemic and the economy. It doesn't just tell you where we've been. That's important because it sheds some light on that. So I think it's helpful to people. It tells you where we're going, where we're going to be in 2020 and, and 2021, sorry, 2021 and 2022 and, uh, despite a lot of bad news on the pandemic and the depression, it has positive and hopefully helpful recommendations on how you can invest and allocate assets and get through this. So, uh, I'm really, uh, I'm really glad to come on the show, Richard. and glad we had the chance to talk about it.
1: Yeah. And just, uh, for listeners, uh, please restate the name of the book and you know, where can they get it?
2: Yeah. The book is called the new great depression. Uh, and you can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, The official release date is uh, Tuesday, January 12th. So it'll be in uh, bookstores on January 12th, but it's available for pre-order right now on Amazon and Barnes & Noble.
1: Excellent. Jim, thank you for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank
0: you, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.